Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Blood Editor-in-Chief Dr. Nancy Berliner and Dr. Laurie Sane discuss the Blood Review series on rare systemic hematological disorders. They were joined in conversation with Dr. Christopher Milani and Dr. Julian Hirochi discussing a very rare but often seen blood disorder. I'm Nancy Berliner. I'm the Chief of Hematology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Blood Journal. Part of the inspiration for this series was an education session in last year's annual meeting that was termed anxiety-provoking hematologic consults. And I consider this review series to be along the same lines. These are six rare disorders that people who are unfamiliar with treating them find them extremely anxiety-provoking. And most people, if they know what they are, still don't really know thoroughly how to deal with them or what to do uh, when they're confronted with a patient with these disorders. I'm Laurie Sen. I'm chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group in British Columbia, Canada. I'm also an associate editor at Blood. And I was happy to be involved in this review series because I would echo Nancy's comments that these disorders are very challenging for most clinicians. They're rarely seen in clinical practice. Not too many physicians have built up any clinical acumen. And because things are changing so quickly, it's really hard to keep up unless you're seeing patients routinely. The articles in this series really make up an interesting array of rare systemic disorders that really border between non-malignant and malignant disease. The articles include Erdheim-Chester disease by Julian Haroche, Langerhans cell histiocytosis by Carlos Rodrigo Galindo, Pediatric HLH by Rebecca Marsh, The Pathobiology and Treatment of Lymphomatoid Granulomatosis, which is a rare EBV-driven disorder by Christopher Milani, Overview of Castleman disease by Angela Dispensieri, and the new molecular genetics and treatment paradigms at advanced systemic mastocytosis by Andreas Reiter. We're joined today by two authors in the series, Christopher Milani, who authored the piece on pathobiology and treatment of lymphomatoid granulomatosis, and Julian Hirosh, who authored the chapter on Erdheim-Chester disease. I'm Christopher Mullaney. I'm one of the staff clinicians that works at the National Cancer Institute. I authored the review article on the pathobiology and treatment of lymphomatoid granulomatosis. To echo what Nancy and Lori said, um, these are often very rare diseases that provoke a lot of anxiety when they're seen in the clinic and in consultation. LYG is a rare EBV-driven disorder that's on the spectrum of Uh, EBV LPDs. It has some unique clinical and pathologic features that distinguish it from the other LPDs and lymphomas. And I think the reason this article is important is it highlights some of those key features clinically and pathologically that may help clinicians in practice distinguish this from these other disorders. By identifying those particular features, it can bring awareness to this disorder. Chris, these are cases that I get referred occasionally. I don't actually see many of these cases, but being a lymphoma specialist, if a case arose in our center, they'd most likely be sent to me. And I have to say that part of the difficulty with these cases is how hard they are to diagnose. So you have mentioned that there's a spectrum of 
EBV-driven disorders. And can you talk to us a little bit more about how you would diagnose a case with LYG? Lori, I agree. Diagnosing LYG can be very challenging, and we get frequent referrals from all over the country and world. I think one of the important things to know compared to other LPDs and lymphomas is it does have some unique clinical features as well as pathologic features. Clinically, LYG is a universally extranodal disease. It frequently involves the lungs, and in our series of nearly 90 patients at the NCI, 100% of patients had lung involvement. But it also frequently involves other extranodal sites, most commonly the central nervous system as well as the skin. Unlike other LPDs and lymphomas, lymph node involvement and bone marrow involvement is extremely rare, and we only saw it in less than 5% of our cases. So if lymph nodes is the primary um, presentation, a clinician should think of alternative etiologies. Furthermore, pathologic features are very important in diagnosing LYG as well. Compared to other LPDs where the EBV-infected B cells may be most abundant and resulting in the, the tissue damage and some of the pathologic findings, in LYG, the EBV-infected B cells are actually the minority of the atypical cells, and, and really it's characterized by this diffuse reactive inflammatory T cell infiltrate, and, and it's often frequently associated with a, a prominent vasculitic component. These T cells are usually very uh, angio-invasive and angio-destructive. So the pathobiology of this disorder is one in related to the abnormal immune surveillance of EBV-infected B cells, but also this profuse abnormal host response towards those EBV-infected cells. So taking together those unique clinical features with those unique pathologic features can really tie in and hint a clinician towards the diagnosis of LYG. What percentage of patients have known immunodeficiencies before they're actually diagnosed with LYG? That's a great question. Frequently before, um, it had been published on that patients with known immunodeficiencies such as Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome as well as HIV infection were at increased risk of developing LYG. We are frequently thinking of those particular patients with known immunodeficiencies as separate from what we think of as classic LYG. LYG, we know the pathobiology relates to a defective immune surveillance of EBV-infected B cells, more frequently a defect in the CD8 positive T cells, but frequently in over 50% of the cases, we can't find a clear genetic known immunodeficiency. Does LYG develop in people who have had distant infection with EBV, or is this a primary immunologic defect with dealing with primary EBV infection? In our original studies with interferon alpha, which we used in low-grade LYG, we did do serologic studies and found that everyone had prior exposure to EBV, but none of the patients actually had acute infection with EBV. So it was more of a distant infection with EBV. And frequently, one thing that helps also to distinguish it from other LPDs, such as PTLD, the EBV viral load in the blood frequently in LYG is a very low level, usually about 100 copies, compared to several hundred thousand, which can be seen in PTLD. So usually it's a prior infection. Julien Roche is here to discuss his manuscript on Erdheim-Chester disease. Julien comes from the Hôpital Pitié-Sapotrière in Paris.
I am Julian Haroch and, and I work as an internist. I am not an hematologist. I work in Hôpital uh, Pitié-Salpêtrière in Paris, in France. And I became interested in this disease about 17, 18 years ago at the end of my residency. And at that time, Erdheim-Chester disease, which was first described in 1930, was considered sort of a miscellaneous disease which was only not particularly seen in the hematologic or any, I would say, uh, it, it wouldn't enter any case in particular. And my boss at that time, they had six or seven patients with very particular cardiovascular involvement with aortic uh, sheathing, it's called Cote d'Aorta. And uh, they told me to work on these particular cases and I went to work again and go back to the literature and that's what I did originally between 2003 and 2008 or 9 and so we described the clinicopathologic aspect of this disease and we first published a little bit on the uh, treatments as well and the first treatment was interferon alpha which was really one of the treatment that prolonged uh, the uh, survival of the patients and so working on this we had many and many more cases, both from France and then from Europe, and we were able to constitute quite an impressive cohort of patients. And the second real important breakthrough within the scope of this disease, and particularly lung and cell histiocytosis and Erdheim-Chester disease, was a discovery by Barrett Rollins' group of BRAF mutations back in 2010. Afterwards, we uh, took advantage of a real impressive network of doctors and pathologists working in France on lung and cell histiocytosis and Erdheim-Chester disease and overlaps forms of, of these disease to show that BRAF was present in LCH and in Erdheim-Chester disease, which I will call ECD in this talk, in about 50 to 60 percent of, of the cases. So really BRAF was a major breakthrough at that time and afterwards we were the first in Paris to give targeted therapies back in 2012-2013 and that's how this whole case series continued to grow and so currently we've been seeing close to 300 patients in, in Paris so that's about 15-20% of the worldwide population of uh, these cases. Laurie and I we're mostly interested in this series as a means of demystifying a set of highly unusual and rare diseases, many of which were related to diseases we see in their more common forms. Three of the diseases we discussed are diseases of histiocytes, which makes everyone nervous all the time because they are extremely rare. And those three actually have benefited from molecular diagnosis and targeted therapies. And the other diseases, systemic mastocytosis has also benefited from molecular analysis and targeted therapy. And we thought that by bringing them together, people could try to begin to sort out how you differentiate these diseases from ones you see more commonly. From my own perspective as well, I have to say that when I see one of these patients, because I, I don't see them very frequently, I immediately go to the literature and try to figure out what's new, what is the current understanding. And it's easy to see that because there's been so much evolution in our understanding of these disorders, and we're now able to diagnose them more accurately because 
they're much more clearly molecularly characterized. Probably some of the older literature is somewhat inaccurate because it probably includes a variety of patients that may not actually fit the diagnosis as we know it today. So I think that a big part of this, the impetus for this series was to have a really up-to-date set of articles that would explore how these entities are now diagnosed and characterized, particularly on the biological level, and how that's translated into novel therapies for these patients, where clearly we're seeing an improvement in outcomes across the board for all of these patients. Yeah, I completely agree. These are a very rare set of, you know, systemic hematologic diseases, and although they are very uncommonly seen in practice with the combined group of them, it is likely that a clinician will encounter one or two in their practice. And if they don't know at least some of the basics on the, the diagnosis of them and the initial management, they're not going to think about them when they're coming up with their differential diagnosis. So one of my goals was to pool a lot of the data because a lot of these studies were from the 70s and 80s um, with very small numbers. So we're fortunate at our institutions to have a rather large population of, uniform population of these diseases that we can fully characterize and inform, you know, the readership about key clinical features for diagnosis as well as some of the uh, existing current management strategies as well as novel uh, treatments that are coming down the line through clinical trials. From my point of view, I guess it's really important to increase awareness of this disease and to demystify the terms like when you see uh, Erdheim-Chester disease, it's, for most of doctors, I think it's scary, but then there are two, there, there are a couple of very important things that are shown here and in this review. It's the long bone involvement like you see on a PET scan or a bone CT scan and the hairy kidney infiltration which is present in at least two-thirds of the patients. And knowing that some of the clinicians, the radiologists, any kinds of doctors who will read this review have this in mind, they will probably make a diagnosis going back to their patients or to their uh, clinics or whatever. And I think it is, there are a lot of undiagnosed patients and that's increasing the awareness. And the second thing is, as Chris was saying for the other disease, is the fact that now you have access to targeted therapies which are in the states accessible. And the, one of the victories of what we've done what we've started in France, like getting targeted therapies to uh, a couple of selected BRAF mutated patients back in 2012. The uh, MSK group treated some patients soon after and following their results, they were uh, able to have the FDA approval two years ago, which was for the indication of Erdem Chester disease with the BRAF mutation. And that's a very strong victory to imagine that for an orphan disease, getting an FDA approval less than five years after this drug was given to a couple of patients, that's really something important. And we're trying right now to get the same thing done in, with the uh, EMA in Europe. And after BRAF inhibitor, now the MEK inhibitors are probably going to get approval in the States for patients with ECD who do not have BRAF mutation. So there is a lot going on after this molecular era. And it's also due for ECD. We're a small community 
and we sometimes have really tight and friendship relationship, and particularly with the group of Omar Abdelwab and Eli Diamond in New York and with other strong collaborative groups who are working in Italy uh, on, on this disease. And so that's very important. I might just ask, so I didn't realize they weren't approved. Given that these novel targeted therapies are not approved for ECD in Europe, would you say that most of your patients are treated on clinical trials? Or are they able to access appropriate therapy? That's a good question. So in, for the case of France and Paris, most of the patients we've treated currently 120, more than 120 patients with ECD or mixed histiocytosis with both LCH and ECD. And the patients are treated off-label and they just sign saying that we've tell them, we've told them that they were treated off-label uh, treatment. So, so far we haven't had any case of the social security uh, refusing to give the drug, which are quite costly, which is like 4,000 euros per month and, uh, per patient for either the BRAF or the, the MEK inhibitors. Now we opened, following Eli Diamond's trial in the States on the MEK inhibitor, which was given for the uh, BRAF wild-type uh, ECD patients, and which was published earlier this year in Nature, we developed the first uh, double-blind placebo uh, trial in Erdheim-Chester disease. It's actually also for other histiocytic disorders, both LCH and Rosai-Dorfman, who do not have the BRAF mutation. We have a three months where we have a placebo or the MEK inhibitors, and there is an after three months, everyone gets for free the MEK inhibitor. And we hope after this trial, the results of this trial in two years or so, we hope it will get the EMA to have an approval for these drugs for the European patients. In France, so there is no cases of patients who cannot get the drug when we prescribe them to them. But I know that colleagues in Italy, in England, and in Germany have problems to get access to this drug. They have to do a lot of administrative paperwork to send them the publications of our groups or Eli Diamond's group, and, and that's very complicated. But hopefully, I hope in the next two or three years, the Europeans will have access like the U.S. patients uh, with an uh, EMA approval. I was very taken aback at the lack of a nice, concise review article on you know, a rare disease like LYG. Like I said prior, a lot of the studies, or treatment studies initially, were done in the 70s, 80s, and then there was really a void in there where